Uh, today we are going to be wrapping up uh, Romans chapter 8. I think this is the, the sixth or seventh message I've given in chapter 8. Um, we will make it through the book of Romans. Uh, but 8 is just so, it's such a crucial chapter for understanding the victorious, saving life of Jesus in the person of the Holy Spirit and his role uh, in our lives and the security that he brings. And today we're going to be considering, uh, I borrow from uh, that beautiful hymn, Blessed Assurance, that that really is what we're going to be considering today, is, is the assurance that the believer ought to have. Um, and the assurance doesn't come because there is no difficulty in life. It's the assurance that comes in the midst of difficulty in the midst of the fact that we're glitchy people, that we're broken people, that we're hurting people, that, that doesn't change the fact that the enmity that was between God and sinful humanity has been dealt with in the person of Jesus. That's the central truth of the Christian message. And so today we're going to be looking uh, at Romans chapter 8 and 31 to the close. And, and this is what Paul has to say. He says... What then shall we say in response to these things? Now, what is he asking about? What shall we say then in response to these things? Well, everything that he has said up to this point in the letter. He has taken over eight chapters. He has given us a robust explanation of what the gospel is. That human beings in our sinful state are incapable of reaching God in their own effort. That... The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and righteousness. And this is why Paul begins by saying that the gospel, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for, for the righteous shall be justified by faith, not by works. And, and the way that he defines wrath is fascinating. We consider this in great depth right before COVID began, which is he defines it not as God striking people dead for their rebellion, but God actually giving them over to that rebellion. You want to be your own God? Then be your own God. It says, therefore God gave them over to do those things which are unfitting. You can define for yourself what is right and wrong. And let's see where that leads you. And even his wrath in Romans 1 is always meant to lead toward a restoration. The purpose is, I will give them over to their brokenness that they might see their need. And I think that this is important for us to understand. But then Paul builds upon, okay, if we're not able to save ourselves, if the law can't save us, if our works can't save us, then what can? And that's where he brings in Romans 3, the powerful passage that explains the heart of the gospel, that now we are justified by our faith in, this, in the work of Christ alone, that Jesus is the God-man who entered into the human predicament, into into his own creation. The creator becomes creature. He is both God and man in a, in a perfect balance. Now as the God-man, he becomes the new representative of a new humanity. And it says that he who knew no sin, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus Christ did not just simply come the Son of God did not come to just simply identify with our humanity, but he literally took upon himself sinful flesh, but without sinning. 
That is, he took the frailty of the human experience into himself, and he actually lived the life that we could never live, that in the frailty of human existence, in a broken, sinful world, he was actually able to live in total and perfect obedience to the Father by the power of the Spirit, which meant that Jesus is the perfect illustration of the Spirit-filled life, and that the life that he lived actually qualified him for the death that he died. And what I mean by that is that Jesus lives life as humanity was meant to live in total union with the Father, total perfect communion with God, living under the influence and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And that perfect life actually qualifies him to be the perfect sacrifice who deals with sin once and for all. And that's why Jesus is called the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, that he takes upon himself the guilt and the brokenness of the human experience, that we were once enemies with God. We were objects of his wrath. We were separated from relationship with God. And he takes that separation. And because of his perfect life, he becomes the perfect sacrifice where on the cross, and I love this, Jesus becomes the one for the many and the many in the one. He becomes both the judge and the judged in our place. And that is a powerful reality. When Jesus said it is finished on the cross, he is proclaiming something that is absolute. This is why Luther said everything that needs to be done has already been done in Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus says, abide in me, because we are putting our trust, we are remaining in the one who has accomplished all that needs to be done. And this is why we are justified by our faith in Christ's work on our behalf. The, the key to understanding salvation is to understand that you will never be able to save yourself. And that the worst master you will ever be confronted with is yourself. And the most... The, the greatest tyranny that you will experience is your own sin. And the impotence that our sin creates in our lives is something that, is, that must be reckoned with. And this is why the gospel is offensive to those who are perishing. Because the gospel demands an acknowledgement that you actually are not good enough to be saved by your own effort. In fact, it's by the acknowledgement that you suck that you become saved. <laughs> it's the confession. Lord, save me. Why would anyone say save me unless you recognize that you were lost or were in need of salvation? A savior is meaningless to a world that is being taught and told on a daily basis that you are your own God. You are the controller of your own destiny. You can do anything you put your mind to. Think of the endless self-help drivel that is fed. And when I say self-help, I'm not talking about, about psychology or therapy or working through brokenness in our past. Those things are beautiful things and are necessary because our lives, uh, our, our histories are plagued by realities that are out of our control and they have to be reckoned with. What I'm talking about is the great lie that says that you have within yourself the power to be whatever you want to be. Because we know 
The fact is, is that none of us, even those that get to the highest point of human achievement, never seem to be satisfied with that place because there is still something inside that says there is something not right. And what is not right is what it, we are told in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men, that there is a longing to be right with God. We just don't know that and we don't identify it as such. And so we think that the longing is going to be satisfied by making it in music, getting the right job, getting the right spouse, having the right kids, living in the right city, having the right home. All of these things we utilize to cloak the real longing, the secret longing of the human heart. But because we are in darkness without the light of Christ, most of humanity does not identify that longing as a, as a longing to be right with God until they hit that bottoming out reality that is so necessary to come to salvation. This is why I think we should use the language of AA, that you cannot find victory over the tyranny of sin until you recognize that you are utterly lost. And un honestly, even the ability to recognize that we're lost requires a divine illumination and a drawing. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws them. And so what Paul is going, the reason I lay that out is because it's super important that we understand what we're talking about now when we talk about how nothing can separate us from the love of God. We have to understand that this is all anchored in the gospel because we're told that Jesus on the cross dealt with sin once and for all, that he died the death that we deserve, but that death could not keep him. For on the third day he rose from the dead, which was the Father's stamp of approval upon his perfect work. And not only that, we're told that after showing himself to his disciples for 40 days, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sits upon the throne and he is an advocate, a mediator on our behalf. And this is a beautiful reality that now Paul is going to say, this is the anchor by which you are able to navigate the difficulty or the impossibility of existence. So because Jesus did all these things, it doesn't mean he erases pain and suffering. It's just that pain and suffering and the reality of human existence now has a new meaning. There's a new lens by which we look at it and we believe that even in the worst moments of our lives that God is redeeming these things and weaving these things into his redemptive purposes and that the best is yet to come. So look at that, the gospel right there. Okay. Unplanned. So if it didn't make sense, you can blame me, not the spirit. All right. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We begin with the advocacy of the Father. Now, I, I want you to notice this. If God is for us, that for us is a very important statement. It's one that's used in the creeds, specifically the Nicene Creed. It says that God became a man for us, that he died, the death that he died, for us. Again and again, that language is utilized that everything that God reveals about himself uh, is directly connected to his concern and care for you. That all that God has done through his son Jesus was for you. And I think the more you personalize that and pull that into the depth of your being, because here's the thing, nothing motivates the transformation of the life except knowing on your worst day that you are loved 
it is proper affections, knowing that you are loved and that the Spirit has poured out the love of God in your heart is essential to understanding how it is that we can become useful in the world in which we live. If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's the reality that we must address is that it doesn't matter what comes against us. It could be cancer. It can be the loss of a relationship. It can be the loss of a job. It can be just some, some debilitating illness. It could be COVID plaguing your family. Whatever it is, that these things do not have the final word because all of them sit under the umbrella of the one who spoke and the universe leapt into existence and that same universe is being held together by him. It's why Luther said this mysterious thing about Satan himself. He said, the devil is still the Lord's devil. And what he meant by that is not that the devil was created by God for the purpose of tormenting God's people. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that there is nothing that is above God himself. And if God has declared that the enmity between himself and humanity has been dealt with in Jesus, then you can take that to the bank. This is something that is an immovable reality. And it is the reality, as I like to say, in which all other realities hinge. And it must become the lens by which we look at existence in life because it's the only thing that can bring satisfaction and hope in the midst of great difficulty. You know what I think is interesting is that Christians often ask the wrong question. We often become obsessed with why is the suffering there rather than what has God done about the with the suffering? What has God proclaimed in Jesus? Because Jesus himself was called the son of sorrows. Was Jesus, was he one who experienced a suffering-free life? I mean, the cross immediately destroys any idea that to have a saving faith in Jesus means that you will never be sick, that you will experience, I mean, I have very good deeply charismatic um, brothers and sisters who really believe that God always wants to heal. And I agree with them that God always wants to heal. I just don't agree that it's always in this lifetime. I believe that ultimately healing is a guaranteed reality in the new heavens, new earth. But even if he heals you in this lifetime, you still got to die sometime. So I, that's why I always say that Lazarus, being raised from the dead, what a crappy deal that guy got. It's like the worst deal ever. For all we know, he died after he was raised from the dead. He probably died of like a heart attack in his sleep. And, and, and then he gets raised from the dead, and then he dies of flesh-eating disease, common to the first century. I don't know what he died of, but it could have been worse. He could have been tortured and killed along with the other early Christians. We don't even know. So we're like, man, that's amazing. What a cool thing. God raised him from the dead. I'm like, no, it's not. It just means he has to die again. I don't know about you, but I've, it says it's been appointed for a man once to die. There literally is a contingency on the verse, except for Lazarus <laughs> and the, the couple of kids that Jesus raised from the dead and Peter raised from the dead. They, they actually had to die twice and then the judgment. Um, so I think that this is, this is the reality. It's like we have the wrong idea and we're asking the wrong questions. So people walk away from their faith when they enter into difficulty, into suffering. 
And, and I always say the suffering has the ability to either make you bitter or better. <laughs> and, and that little aphorism is just, it's, it's, it's helpful. Uh, because when we see that nothing, when we believe this passage and pull it into our experience, it's the ability to see that often the most painful experiences we go through are the ones that shape us and mature us more than anything else. You know, I, I was thinking a lot about this um, when, it, when I was just pondering my wife. You know, Darcy and I, when we did this three-day intensive um, in Chicago, both of us had to spend time uh, in, uh, in our sessions. One, one day, Darcy kind of shared her childhood story, and then the next day, I shared mine. And, and I was thinking about Darcy. One of the things, I fell in love with her. Like, when I met her in May... May 24th, 1996 at the Satyricon, and I walked up to her and I said, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. I'd never done that before. And she believed me and took me home, which is why we don't do premarital counseling. Um, and uh, uh, we weren't Christians. <laughs> it's just a disclaimer. We knew nothing about Jesus. Um, and it's people like, so what do we do before you get married? I'm like, I, I don't know. That's a great question. Um, uh, but, I, but I, I, one of the things I fell in love with is that Darcy had, there was a, um, the only way I could describe it was there was a depth in her eyes, almost like, um, like there was a, a, a wisdom that surpassed her age, that, where there was like an ancientness that came through incredible loss. Her only brother, her only sibling, um, who was her best friend, died six months before I met her, in her arms. Her best friend died of leukemia. Her grandfather had died of a massive heart attack. All these people she was close with, like in a three-year period, just boom. Just trauma, heartbroken. A man she thought she was gonna marry who couldn't handle the difficulty um, of her brother's sickness and abandoned her. And all of these layers and layers and layers of pain actually is produced in her the most unbelievable nurturing empathy that I've ever seen in a person. It's not just an empathy where there's just no control over one's emotions. I'm talking about she has an uncanny ability to enter into pain because she understands it. And there's a rawness in her ability to enter into it because she understands that pain is always raw. That, it's, that there's no glossing over it. Like just, you know, Jesus has got gotcha. you. It's the ability to truly grieve a hurting moment without ever losing hope in the fact that the best is yet to come. This is uh, one of my favorite books on suffering uh, called A Lament for a Son. I can never say his last name, but it's, if you look up Walter <laughs> and Lament for a Son, it's a really long, intense um, last name. I think like Greek or something. He, he talks about after his son died on a, um, a climbing expedition in Europe uh, and having to go to Europe and get his son's body and bring it back to the States and the deep pain. He's like, I understand. He is like, he's, a, he's a philosopher um, and a professor of philosophy in a Christian university. He goes, I get the hope, but it doesn't change the loss. It doesn't change the fact that what I feel in every room is my son's absence. He's like, it doesn't change the fact that I know his love because it's not here anymore. 
it doesn't change the fact that he said, maybe now through my tears I can see the world differently. And I think that this is the power of a God who is for us and the fundamental belief what can be against us allows us to, to transform the difficulty of existence into something that's actually quite meaningful and quite beautiful. And it's not that we're to be masochists. We're not to bring, ask, God, bring suffering into my life. No, that's not, you don't have to ask for it. It will come. Because if you're a human being who has relationships with people, you are going to grow and you're going to age and you're going to start losing people you love. And that's just part of human existence. But how do we handle that is defined by how we hold to the gospel. So I love this because here he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Which means that God is our protector. That it doesn't matter what we experience, it doesn't stop the fact that God has not lost his grip on your life. Which is the, one of the main things that the enemy wants you to believe when you're in a dark season is that God actually doesn't care, that he's disinterested, that he's not engaged, that he's not involved. But that's not the fact. That's not the reality. God is in control. And it doesn't matter what comes against us, whether it's spiritual or physical, the reality is, is that God is still in control. He still has his grip upon you. He still has the ability to bring you through to the close. And he is going to use the difficulties of life to bring you into an even more robust and fuller understanding of what the love of God is capable of doing in human existence. Because we are told that in the new heavens, new earth, we receive new names, new bodies. And I think all of that will be wrapped up in what we endured for the sake of the gospel that God will utilize all of it to make us a people that are immovable in the, in the world to come. I have to believe that. As a kid who experienced so much brokenness throughout my life, I have to believe that that wasn't in vain, that those, that wasn't for nothing, that God utilizes all of our, all of our history, the things that we do that are bad, as well as the things that are done to us that are bad, as well as the things that are good. He utilizes all of it to weave into his redemptive purposes, and nothing can stop God from completing his task. That is a beautiful reality. That's why it says that he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. It's that he will make all the things, good, bad, horrific, all of it he utilizes to only prove that nothing can thwart his ultimate goal, which is to provide a bride for his son. And that's you and I. He's our protector. If he's for us, then nothing can be against us, which means that he protects in ways that we don't understand. That's one of the challenging things, is that the reason people get frustrated and give up on God in times of difficulty is because they are looking at the world through a temporal lens. We don't understand that this is not all there is. And I think often in the church, we have turned the gospel into a temporal, materialistic We've embraced the materialistic worldview and there is something in the modern man and woman that believes that this is all there is. And it's just simply not. And as long as you believe that, you are going to be very, very frustrated. 
life is going to be extremely difficult. I remember that feeling when I was 26 and not yet a believer, and I had just lost my record deal um, with Mercury, and I thought my life was over. Because this, is every, this was my God, and then that God proved to not be a very worthy God because he abandoned me. <laughs> and and that, that crushed me because all I could see was the temporal, the, the material world. And I was rejected by the very thing that I had given my life to, and I could not cope with it. It brought a despair. For me, it brought a bottoming out that ultimately led to me coming to faith. When, so when people say that Christianity is for the weak, I always say yes and amen. They're like, you put your faith in God because life is too hard. I'm like, yeah, I totally, that's totally true. Why, why would I argue with that? And what are you putting your faith in? Like, science. No, I don't know. It's like, like Nacho Libra. Have you guys, what a great movie. Whatever happened to that movie? Me and Henry watched that so many times when he was a little boy. <laughs> Steven. <laughs> I love these guys. I believe in science. I love when he secretly baptized him from behind, like just pushed his face into the bowl of water. It's so good. <laughs> God is our provider. Look at this. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He provides. Now, it would be foolish to say that this is just simply a provision that is spiritual. And it doesn't mean that God gives us you know, God is here to materially bless us, and there is much within the prosperity gospel that is just loathsome, and sadly, where it is most popular is in places where people will never experience prosperity. It's often in places like India or Africa, places of deep poverty, third world um, countries where people have nothing, and the gospel that they are being given and the gospel that they are putting their hope in is the gospel that says, if you trust in Jesus, you will have what I have. And so that's what's represented in the, the preachers that drive, that fly their jets, you know. I mean, that's why they're comfortable actually asking for money to buy another jet. Because they are there to witness to you what is possible if only you had the faith that they had. But sadly, that has no place in the gospel. God is a provider. And what Jesus teaches us to pray is what we need. And what we need and what we think we need are often two very different things. And once again, our lens is created by the world and the culture and the context in which we live. And so we have to understand that we are products of the world around us. And this is why Jacques Ellul, the great French philosopher and high churchman, wrote profoundly in 1948 that due to technological in, uh, to the advancements in technology and due to the fact that we see an increasingly globalized economy. He wrote this in 1948. He died in 93. He didn't even get to see how prophetic his words were. He says, sin is becoming increasingly collective. And what he meant by that is that we can't escape our brother, our sister's sin because it's so intertwined in the economy and technology. And man, if only he would have known how true those words were when we think of social media and the power. I mean, how dumb that they just came up with this, this study that showed that Instagram isn't very healthy for young, young women. 
And then I just saw like all these Twitter, like, do better, Mark. Like, really? We're just now de de deciding that, that social media does bad things to kids' hearts. Like, it does, that it creates, it creates a, 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 a desire to be something that one can't be because what they are being presented with day in and day out, all day long, is a, is a fantasy anyway. So nothing is more exhausting than trying to be the fantasy self that you will never be because it's a fantasy self. And yet, this is the reality in which we live. And so this creates a difficulty for us when it comes to God's provision for us. Because we think of provision in terms of what culture says you should have, which creates a I want, I want sort of interior monologue that believes that the world is unfair and that you are owed more than what you currently are experiencing. But the gospel brings us to a place like Paul where we can say, what do I have that I have not received? And whether I have much or I have nothing, I don't care because I have Christ. God's provision is real, but we need to understand that our definition of what that provision is is often defined more by the reality of sin than it is by the gospel. God is also, I love, our justifier. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. I love this. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. God is the one who has justified us through the finished work of his son. We are justified freely, we are told, by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.24. And that justification, luckily, isn't it interesting how we try to justify our existence, how we try to justify our decisions. But the beauty of the gospel is that it's not about what you try to justify about your own existence. One of the most painful things that I've had to come to terms with is the fact that I really believe that God loves me. I really believe that God loves you. I really believe that any ability to preach or any ability to write music, or any of the things they do, to father, to be a husband, all of those things are a gift from God. And yet there is still that, that invisible child in me that is still attempting to prove to an audience that does not exist that I matter. And this is where the brokenness of our lives plays deeply into how we experience the gospel. And the more I can confess that honestly, the less power it has over me. And I think that this is the power of confession because when we talk about God's justification, I just need you to ask yourself the same question that I've been having to ask myself. Do I believe that I am justified by Christ alone? Or is there something in me that is still saying, well, you know, you actually have a lot to do with your justification. You, you've, got, you've got to prove your worth to God. You've got to prove your worth to your friends and to your coworkers and to your spouse and to your kids. And, and, and then that trying, that latter theology immediately begins to push the cross out of view. And instead of realizing that nothing can separate us from a God who alone justifies us through the work of Jesus, we begin to believe that our justification is always on unstable ground. That salvation could be taken from us at any moment. It's a dangerous thing.
because the advocacy of the Father is an immovable fact. Secondly, the mediation of Jesus. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life. It is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Notice, Paul makes it very clear who can separate us from God? Who can bring condemnation to us? Who can condemn us? But then he says the reason he asked these questions, and notice Paul is asking a series of rhetorical questions, and he's using that as a device to, to unhinge or turn upside down on its head the common belief that if I am being persecuted for my faith, then God must be unhappy with me. Or if I am looking at, and this is a, a reality, is that Paul often was confronted and ultimately was put to death. He was beheaded. He, was, he said he was whipped how many times, beaten how many times, left for dead, stoned and left for dead, hungry. All of these things he experienced, and he said all of it was worth it because he kept the truth of this at the center of his existence. And it actually meant that the sufferings that he was experiencing on behalf of being a witness to Jesus was, was worth it. Because nothing compared to the love of God that he was experiencing in the moment and also the completion of that work being honored and rewarded in the life to come. And I think that this is important because Paul has this incredible ability to see how temporary suffering is. And I think that's one of our problems is because you guys know, I, I know what it's like. When, you're, when I was going through eight months of severe anxiety and didn't sleep and f felt like something internally was deeply wrong, it one day felt like an eternity. And it was hard for me to see beyond that. All I knew is like, I can't actually handle how I feel. Paul had an uncanny ability to actually keep those things separated. The reality of what he was experiencing versus the reality in which everything else was viewed through. And that's the gospel. And I think that this is why it is so important that we stay together as a church, because it's the church that becomes a place that reminds you again and again. If you hadn't come today and you're experiencing significant depression, anxiety, and you feel all alone in the world, unless you hear that again and again, and you experience real love and community through God's people, which often the way that Jesus makes himself known the most powerfully is through one another. And if you don't spend time in the Word and you don't know God's Word and the promises that He's spoken, how will you have any confidence? How will you grow beyond, uh, beyond you know, that new believer that's like, I've given my, put my faith in Jesus, but I continue to just do what I want, read what I want, think what I want, listen to what I want, watch what I want, speak what I want, and then you can't figure out why you're so bummed and feel so lost when you're in suffering. Maybe it's because you haven't built upon the foundation what we think about defines who we are. You want to know what you love, just ask yourself, what do you spend the majority of your time thinking about? If you want to know what has captured your heart, ask yourself, what do you actually love? Because you are what you love. You can't escape that reality. And I think that here we see Paul, he really loved Jesus, which enabled him to confront the reality of death because he understood the gospel. 
Listen to this. He says, no, Jesus Christ who died, I think this is interesting, Christ died and was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. He died, he's risen, he's ascended, and he's making assurance. So he died to remove the guilt of sin. Forgiveness is real. It has been accomplished for all people, past, present, and future. The question is, will we say yes to the forgiving word that we find in Jesus? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It tells us two things. It's the Father's heart to forgive and that you and I have things that need to be forgiven. It tells us that God's heart is to forgive and it also tells us the great predicament that we are stinking guilty. Jesus' death is about eradicating the guilt. He says that he rose, he has conquered death, and that conquering reality of his death um, where he rose from the dead means that the life that he lived is now available to us who put our faith in him. So how does one actually experience victory in life? And uh, people ask me this a lot because I talk a lot about the fact that no matter what we do, even in the power of the Spirit, we are still mixture. That doesn't mean there's no victory. Just think of it in terms of like, a, of like a movement like this. The closer you get to Jesus, the deeper you see your own brokenness. But at the same time, there is a movement of, of sanctification in, that comes through the bringing our brokenness into the light so that it loses its power over our lives. In fact, I would argue that it is through salvation in the light of Christ that one actually begins to understand that they are a sinner, truly understand. I don't trust any Christian that says that they no longer sin. Uh, In fact, John is very clear in 1 John. He says anyone who says he has no sin makes God a liar and the truth is not in him. In fact, the more you grow in your Christ-likeness, the more fully weighted you will feel your brokenness, which will cause you to cast yourself in even greater dependence upon the one who alone can be victorious in and through you. I believe in the saving life of Christ, in the victory that Christ's life can bring into the present. Real, appropriating the forgiveness that is mine. Surrendering to the power of the Spirit. To be Spirit-filled is not you getting more of the Spirit, it's just the Spirit having more control of your life. But the Spirit can't have more control of your life and not at the same time expose what's inside you. And often that is not an unpleasant sight. That's why Robert Murray McShane said, for every one look you take into your own heart, take ten looks to Jesus. And so the mediation of Jesus, he's died, he's risen, he's at the right hand of the Father, which means that everything is under his control and ultimately he is making intercession. Now just keep this in mind. Romans chapter 8 has already told us that the Spirit makes intercession for us because we do not know what to pray for as we ought to. Which means that we really must suck at prayer if it takes two people in the Godhead to actually make sense of anything that we say. Once again, showing that God himself provides all that is necessary to live in a way that's meaningful and life-giving. The mediation of Jesus is the thing that keeps us moving through the challenges, which brings me to the close. And and I put the assurance of the Spirit, even though the Spirit is not mentioned in this particular section, let me just state that all of Romans 8 is about the role of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life due to our faith in the work of Jesus. And he says here, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors, 
through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, the fact that life is impossible and death is inevitable. (laughs) Maybe a better way to say that is life is terminally impossible. And yet, it will not have the last word. Jesus already has given the last word. It's finished. Neither angels nor demons. We are told that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the rulers of this age. And we are told that on the cross, Jesus made a public spectacle of the dominions of darkness. He has dismantled their power, but that's actually what makes the the demonic realm so dangerous, is that the demonic realm has received a mortal wound, which like a dog that has been wounded, is a very dangerous thing to approach. This is why Jesus still teaches us to pray, keep us from the evil one. As much as I like my friend's band, Demon Hunter, that's not actually what we're called to do. What we're called to do is cling to Jesus, which causes the dominions of darkness to flee from us because Jesus is a constant reminder to them that they are defeated. But they are more than happy to wreak havoc in our lives when we stop abiding in Christ and start abiding in our own self-will, our own desire to be our own gods. That is where the dominions of darkness play, wreak havoc on our lives. Neither present nor future. So we don't have to worry about our past or present or our future, all of this is contained in the perfect and total work of Christ. So even though, I always like to say in, in the book that I just finished stumbling toward eternity, you know, if we think of the cross, is that it reaches into the heavens, it reaches into the depths of hell, it reaches back to the, to the, the foundation of all things, and it moves forward to the eternity to come. And, and our life is not like this trajectory where we start like this. It's more like this, where we're just consistently waffling between heaven and hell, usually within the same day at multiple points. And the good news is the cross encompasses the whole thing. This is why Jesus says, narrow is the way to life, and there are few who find it. He's not talking, I don't believe, about salvation, who's, who's in and who's out. I think he's talking about the difficulty of discipleship. Because if there's only one way to go, there's a thousand ways to fall. But the good news is that the work of Christ encompasses all of it. And he says this, he says, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth. So it doesn't matter, not the ruling powers. For those of you that actually thought, it doesn't matter which side of the political coin you land. Or if you're like probably most people, you're some, you don't even know what you are. You're just, you're just, you just know what you like and don't like. And just so you know, we're so incapable of actually making good judgment calls uh, when it comes to political choices that we generally, our brains teach us to vote based upon whether or not the person has a strong chin. It's a real fact. Um, which should, uh, actually, if you read Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, he's like, it's been proven historically that politicians with strong chins are more likely to be voted in than politicians with weak chins which tells us something horrific about the human mind. We are fools who think we know so much more than we know. Uh, But it doesn't matter where we land, and it doesn't matter who's in control because it doesn't change anything. It doesn't matter if this country tomorrow became a communist regime or a dictatorship or, you remember that really horrific movie that was so bad? Not because it was... was, uh, 
not because it is horrific in its content, it's just horrific for being made because it was so poorly made, um, called Red Dawn. <laughs> I just dated myself so hard. I was forced to watch this in sixth grade in my class because they wanted to show us what was very possible of the Cold War where the Cubans and the Russians invade America and take over, except for these powerful, young, beautiful, young people. I think Patrick Swayze was in that one. There's something, you know, who fights back in the, in the, in the heartland. And I guess even the Russian accents were bad. Like, it, like none of it was right. Um, it doesn't matter what happens because all political systems are illusions under the sway of the wicked one. What matters is our continued allegiance to King Jesus and our consistent witness to the world in which we live. Nor anything else in creation. So I love that. Paul just adds to that, like, in case there's anything I've forgotten, everything that is, nothing is more powerful than the grasp that God has on your life in Jesus. None of it will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is why Paul had written earlier, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not what? Put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, in Romans 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Keep in mind that Paul ends this chapter not to say that those who put their faith in Jesus now live a suffering-free life. He's saying that the suffering doesn't change the love of God. And the love of God actually has the ability to change the suffering. That's the beauty of the gospel. Amen?